This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From MILB.com and MLB Advanced Media, it's the show before the show, a story told every Thursday when we remember to put it up on Thursdays. I'm Sam Dykstra. For the last couple of weeks, the Toledo Mudhens have tried to figure out what number a certain player wore on the back of his uniform for just a couple of weeks during the 1984 season. Or if you want to get technical about it, and apparently I do, what number a certain player wore for exactly 21 games during the 1984 International League season. This feels odd on their part. They've had to ask for the public's help about their own team, hoping for a picture or a box score or a random memory. And they're not detectives or private investigators. They're not even a historical society. But yeah, for some time in the last couple of weeks, they've been trying to find out just a uniform number for just a player. That player's name, Kirby Puckett. You can tell it's going to be kind of a, a different style episode this week. Welcome into the show before the show podcast from MILB.com. You already heard from Sam. My name is Tyler Mon. Sam is with Benjamin Hill. And uh, gentlemen, take it away. What's going on this week? Well, that's right. I'm Benjamin Hill. And uh, we have a, uh, a story of mystery and intrigue for you today. As uh, Sam so ably introed at the start of this podcast, uh, we are going to Toledo talking with Emily Kroll and John Hussman. And uh, they were members of the Toledo Mudhens front office who were embroiled this offseason in a mystery to find the correct number of a player who played 21 games for the team 34 years ago. We only cover the most important stories here on the MILB.com show before the show podcast. And this is certainly one of them. So basically, this is as close as we ever get to serial here on the Minor League Baseball podcast. And we really want to take advantage. Um, so here we are, uh, interviews with both Emily Kroll, the manager of events and game day presentation for the Toledo Mudhens, and John Hussman, the team's story. And now we're here with Emily Kroll, the manager of events and game day presentation for the Toledo Mudhens. Uh, thanks for being here with us today, Emily. Hey, thanks for having me. And, uh, you know, last month uh, you guys released your uh, promotional schedule. It's that time of year for that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, referred to it as the, the best of all time, which is a pretty strong statement, but we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> and, uh, of course, I think one of the things that would make it the best of all time is you're planning a special bobblehead um, honoring Kirby Puckett, a uh, – an alumni of the Toledo Mudhens. Uh, what what inspired the team to uh, honor Kirby Puckett in the year 2018? Well, um, like anything else, um, when we start going through promotions and uh, specifically giveaways, bobbleheads always go to the very top. Um, it seems like no matter what giveaway you came up with or you come up with, whether it's crazy, has to do with a theme night, bobbleheads are always top of mind um, and the things that people look for first. So. Uh, we had started our bobblehead concept about the time we normally do, so we had started talking about it last, uh, you know, July, August, September, 
And um, Kirby Puckett was a name that had showed up on our list third times. Uh, you know, we always try to look for people who are notable uh, and had been with the team, whether they were a manager, whether they were a player, whether they did a rehab assignment, but just something that, you know, kind of has a bigger draw um, outside of just the current player since they move up and down so much. So um, I guess that's where it started. He had made the finalist list a couple years, and then this year we finally decided that he was going to make the cut and added him to the schedule. And uh, just what was it about this this round um, that kind of allowed him to, to make that cut? And at what point did that decision become final that, yes, he was actually getting his own bobblehead? Um, well, we decided to kind of have some fun with some alumni um, this year. So um, we're also doing a Jose Lima bobblehead. Uh, Lima time was, you know, he had kind of a quirky personality and a weird story. So, um, and then we also decided that Kirby Puckett kind of fit in that too. Because ironically, when we knew this, um, that he had only been in Toledo for 21 games. So it wasn't even long enough that people here remembered him as a mud hen. He was way more notable as a MLB Hall of Famer, but it was just kind of ironic that, um, like anything else in minor league baseball, we are just at AAA, we are one step away from the big show. And for Kirby, he made that step up and never came back. So again, it was just kind of a quirky story of, hey, let's feature him. I bet a lot of people don't know um, that he played for the Mud Hens, yet a lot of people will probably recognize Kirby's name, which he did, or which they did. So um, we decided, um, I believe we finalized that in September, um, but as bobbleheads go, we did not start the process of that, of starting to do his bobblehead until um, around November, December, and that's kind of where this all began. Yeah, and I'm... I'm he only played 21 games, and uh, you know those games were in very cold weather in April of 1984. So definitely not yeah. many people remembered him to the extent that no one knew his uniform number. Uh, at, at what point did you realize uh, first realize this was a problem? Um, well, you know, anytime we do our bobbleheads, we um, we try to send the most accurate images as possible. So there are a lot of Google searches, and we'll even you know even if a guy played here, we'll find. Um, headshots from other teams. So I'm going through, and obviously uh, Kirby's most noted in a Twins uniform. So I was sending a lot of Twins photos, and then I was sending some old photos from Mud Hens jerseys um, of the jersey he would have worn in 1984. And then Bobblehead distributor said, "Well, what number is it?" And at that point, you know, I um, we have an all-time roster sheet, but a lot of the years don't have numbers on them. And then we started going through Old Blade articles, which is our local newspaper. And even today, if you go through box scores, especially baseball, uh, they very rarely put the number of the player just because it has so little relevance with the game itself. So we had what position he played. He was starter um, the 1984 opening day. There was even a photo of all of the guys lined up on opening day. But unfortunately, our jerseys that year did not have a number on the front. So... Um, we have in our club level, we have some photos of notable players um, who have made it to various Hall of Fame or notable managers. So I took a stroll down there thinking, well, there has to be a picture of him there. And there was not. Uh, so at that point, I contacted our team historian, John Huffman. No, I've never come across a quest for missing uh, uniform number at all. Uh, 
And this one uh, came about uh, because uh, we're doing a bobblehead to honor uh, uh, Kirby Puckett and, uh, and, uh, for a promotion. And part of the deal was to put his number on his uniform back, and we didn't have it. I mentioned a minute ago that I do a, uh, I maintain an all-time roster, and part of that is the uniform numbers. I didn't have his. Uh, looking back at what I did have, um, uh, the team for 1984, the year he was with us, we had, uh, I think, 35 players on the roster, and I had 27 or 28 numbers, but I didn't have his for whatever reason. And when I've gone back and, uh, and reconstructed uh, this roster with the numbers, I just look at programs. And, you know, typically in those days, as, as other clubs did too, we had an insert in our program for the, that day's game. And uh, he was here earlier in the year, and I just didn't have a have a program. He had nothing in print with, uh, with his number on it. So we were just at a loss, didn't have it. And then I asked, uh, Jim Weber, who is a IL Hall of Famer, has done our broadcast for years and years and years. He actually took Kirby to the airport. He got called up, um, thought, well, for sure, Jim has some sort of official score sheet or record of it somewhere. And Jim said, you know what? People have asked me this over the years, and I don't know. So it kind of started to turn into a joke that what seemed like such an easy task that I hadn't even thought twice about starting this process way earlier was now I was hitting a deadline with the bobblehead manufacturer and they were saying, well, we need this in order to start production. And we literally had not a shot in the dark of what it was. And at one point then you said, okay, we're going to have to crowdsource this. You put it out on Twitter. <laughs> and uh, what was the reaction yeah. there? And I know kind of uh, all sorts of stuff happened from that point. <laughs> yeah. So um, that, you know, was, we kind of started talking about it and first we said, well, we can just leave the Jersey blank. Um, and then with, uh, social media, we thought, well, as soon as we announce this and if people see it's blank, there's probably hundreds of people who know what his number is. And we just don't, you know, for whatever reason, we don't have record of it, but the answer has to be out there somewhere. Maybe someone has a photo of him. Maybe someone has an autograph. It was right before the holidays. We posted on Twitter, um, I believe it was December 21st or 22nd. So it was about that time when people were starting to kind of get in the Christmas mode. We thought they'd be checking and um, could be home for the holidays, could look through some old stuff if they wanted to. And we said, you know what, let's just put it out there um, and see what happens. And, you know, we got some, we kind of joked, one of the first official guesses, I'll say, um, was from this schooler who was a fan. And she said, well, my grandmother says it's number four, and we don't really have any proof of that, but grandma says that's what it is. So for a while, it was a joke that Skylar's grandma was going to be basically what we were going to use to verify this. And at, at this point, no one was proving Skylar's grandmother wrong. <laughs> um, and that was the thing is a lot of people started sending in um, their, well, I think he wore this, and oh, he for sure wore this. Um, but no one could provide any proof. And you know, we did say anyone who provided proof, we would give them four tickets to the game. We'd make sure they got four bobbleheads, but we needed some sort of proof. And, um, you know, people, it just kind of kept going in a circle of people said, did you ask them? And then one person would retweet and then it would end up at the next person, the next person. And no one knew <laughs> it just kept going in a circle. And 
um, we kind of laughed because they said, well, how do you not have official records of these? And how do you not know? And a lot of people don't understand that in minor league baseball, there are hundreds and thousands of players who come through. And as I mentioned earlier, Kirby Puckett was not even, he was a prospect, but he was nowhere near expected to turn into what he did just like the other hundreds of players that come through that I'm sure we don't have records of what their numbers were, but frankly, we've never looked for it. So um, it just kind of kept going, but lo and behold, we did not have an answer um, for upwards of a month. And uh, I think a, a key part of the story is the, the Toledo Blade covered it. Um, David Briggs <laughs> with the Toledo Blade, he wrote a great story about it, which kind of prompted us to do this interview. And uh, that, that fueled the flames even more, huh? Yes, it did. And he did that. Um, you know, they just contacted us. And again, it was a fun thing. And every once in a while, someone would tweet it again or someone would send something out. But we just didn't have any proof. So he contacted us. Um, and he said, I want to do a story about this. We think it's really interesting. Um, by this point, John Hussman, our historian, had contacted me. And he said... Um, we kind of laugh. I don't know if any of you have ever watched um, True Detective, but there's the wall with all the arrows and the lines, and this leads to this and circles. Basically sent me a sheet of that, that he had, of all the people he had talked to, where he said, I don't have proof of Kirby Puckett, but this is what I have. Um, and I'm sure, you know, he says it better than I do, but basically he said, we've narrowed it down to these numbers, but... I can guarantee that the manager actually wore the other numbers we're considering, so Kirby had to have worn 28. Well, I, I got into it a little late. Uh, uh, our Emily Kroll uh, uh, put this out to the fans on social media to kind of promote it and, uh, and uh, create a little interest, I guess, and nothing came back, and she called me, and I looked and didn't have it, and uh, I thought, gosh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'll check the newspapers, and maybe there's a was a preseason roster in there, some pictures I could pick up a number. And I went to look, check the microfilm for the local paper, and uh, there was nothing there. There was a, a, a preseason roster, okay, but there were no numbers on it. Uh, there was one picture taken uh, on opening night, but it wasn't an action picture, and Kirby was in it, but you couldn't see his number. Uh, there were no pictures of the of game action when he was playing here in Toledo, so we didn't, we had nothing there. So I was really at a loss uh, for printed sources. I didn't know where to go. And I called a couple of people I knew that had been around Toledo baseball for a long time, and uh, I, got a, I got a breakthrough with a man by the name of Rick Youngs. Rick was associated with the club in those days. He was the official scorer and did a little, excuse me, did a little writing for them. And he told me, he said, you know, I got a call from somebody 15 or 20 years ago and asked me that question. And he said the number was either 28 or 24. And he said he had the records, but they were not accessible to him. He said, I can try and find those, but as far as I remember, it was either number 28 or 24. So I looked at the list of players I had, and I had no number 28 or number 24 on it. And I, I knew that our manager, Cal Armour, wore number 24. 
So 28 kind of uh, stood out that it might be likely. So I talked to another guy that I know, Steve Paprocki of Toledo, that uh, is kind of a collector of scorecards and all kinds of memorabilia. He didn't have the number either, but he put out a, a tweet to some people he knows, and uh, it came. Uh, he got several replies, and somebody did reply to him with a, uh, uh, he said he had an autograph of Kirby Puckett's when he was in Toledo and had 28 on it. So that kind of sensed it for me. And I, uh, I uh, put two and two together and I had nothing concrete, but I I told the club, I said, let's go with 28. He originally called me. He said, well, Emily, I have an answer. I would bet money on it, but I wouldn't bet my life. And we kind of laughed. And I said, well, at this point, no one can prove you wrong. That's good enough for me. And so by the time the Blade article came out, we had decided um, that we were going to put 28 on the jersey, on the bobblehead, and we said, you know what, if someone comes forward and proves us wrong, it almost makes the body or the bobblehead more ironic that we went through this whole search and we still got it wrong. But we said, you know what, based on what he told us, we're going to move forward with it and go ahead. Um, and ironically, the day after the Blade article was sent, someone did come forward. They had an official program and lineup sheet from one of the games that he played, and he was, in fact, number 28. So, um, you know, he said, oh, I didn't see this. I didn't know you had it. Um, he made it sound very nonchalant after we had spent, I don't know how many hours looking for this. He said, oh, my wife Linda is so organized. It took her less than 10 minutes to find the 1984 box in our basement and find it. So just just like that, it took the right person with the right information, and we had confirmed it was number 28. And just to give a shout-out to him, his name is Guy Lammers. Uh, he's the guy who <laughs> yeah. found the old scorecard in his basement. Uh, I just want to go back yeah. to that moment when you decided to go with 28. Uh, when you call the bobblehead or email them or whatever, the bobblehead <laughs> company, and say, we're just going to go with it, was it a feeling of relief just to know it's over, or were you still panicked like, this could be wrong? <laughs> Um, we kind of laughed and said, um, I talked about it with some of the other people in my department and I said, should I keep waiting? Should we do keep it blank? And we said, you know what, let's go with it. Worst case scenario, there are 2000 bobbleheads of Kirby Puckett wearing a number that is absolutely absurd, but that's the joy of minor league baseball and it makes it more fun. And long-term this, there's really nothing special about this bobblehead other than the fact that we haven't been able to figure out what the number is. That's what's achieved all of the attention. That's what people are interested in. So we said, you know what, even if it's wrong, it has a good story. Let's go with it. However, I will say when I got the email from Guy, I jumped out of my desk chair, said, oh my gosh, it's real. We had a moment. <laughs> I emailed a couple people. I said, we have to put this on Facebook now. So I think that was more of my sigh of relief of this is a real thing. Some baseball historian isn't going to come after me in June and tell me I'm wrong. And uh, this is a real thing. It's official. After hearing you were right and getting all that response back, uh, you know, you're a team historian, but do you think there's a future in team detective after this? Oh, how about that? Yeah. It's a lot of fun to do. And uh, it's really created an unbelievable interest. It's just uh, uh, a lot of folks have caught up with the story and are interested in it. It's been a lot of fun. He played 21 games for us. Uh, probably about half of those were in Toledo. And 
not many people saw him. We counted uh, our fans in those days, especially in April, and he was with us in the hundreds, you know. So he, he wasn't really seen by many. So I I've kind of said that uh, notoriety, uh, Kirby Puckett is the franchise leader in notoriety per games played. It's just, it's just unbelievable what people think of Kirby Puckett as a, as a mud hen. And his contribution to Toledo baseball history on the field was virtually nothing. But what he went on to do was tremendous, and he, and he is one of our alums, and we're proud to say that. Right, and just to kind of tie this all back together to what Ben started this whole segment with, you know, before this even happened, you were calling the promo schedule the best of all time. With the way things have gone viral, <laughs> has this been, if not the best, the most interesting promo release you guys have had since you've been there? Or of all time. Or of all time, um, if you want to expand it out. <laughs> It's been interesting. Um, you know, it was weird. It, in minor league baseball, you just never know what's going to hit. Um, you know, I think we did it last year. Fresno did it with the Beatles jerseys. You know, it really, there's nothing special about that. It's the same things that everyone, everyone knows, and it's the same album cover. But for some reason, it hits that market. Um, and I think this hit a different side of that market. Um, there's one side of promos where it hits pop culture, it hits what people like now, or things like the Beatles that people have been fans of for a long time. I think what made this one different was that um, it kind of appealed to historians and people who really do like baseball, who just were reaching out to us, who have never reached out to us about a promotion before, but they just could not believe that we didn't have record of it and they wanted to help and they genuinely we're looking through old scorecards. So I think for us, that's what's made it the best of this year is that it has appealed to a totally different audience who, um, you know, are very interested in Kirby's career, but are also very interested in uh, Mud Hens baseball history, who, um, you know, have dug through their stuff, who said, oh, I went to that game, I saw Kirby, uh, but I don't have proof of what he was. And so I think for us, that's been the, most interesting part and I think I told you in an email it's been a weird crazy fascinating story that is completely useless to most of society but that's kind of what makes it great and that's kind of what minor league baseball does so well at so uh, I think we appreciate it from that standpoint absolutely well thank you for filling it uh, filling us in with so much detail on this completely useless topic <laughs> that's not useless to us yeah. just for the <laughs> We, we love it. We, we are fascinated. It's a minor league baseball whodunit, and the mystery has been solved. Uh, Emily, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Well, thank you. And I um, have to tell you that you have not been, you have not been to Toledo in a few years, so you need to make your way back. All right, I, I, will, I will do my best. I I'm not, like I'm, there's a date on the calendar in which you have yeah, to go now. Yeah, I'm not sure what year I visited, but no one knows. <laughs> we'll have to investigate. <laughs> no one knows. <laughs> <laughs> So there you have it, the Kirby Puckett caper, um, or or so, I, I don't know, we have to come up with a flashier name than that, but that really is crazy, and especially in this era in which everything is so instantly accessible, anything that you want to know, you can find out through a very easy Google search. Um, the fact that like in 2018, something like that is still unknowable to a certain extent, and you know, it turns into a, a viral um, historical search is pretty crazy. Absolutely. And it's the Kirby Puckett predicament oh, okay. for those keeping score at home. Predicament. 
I feel like we should actually put this out on, on Twitter now. We'll have yeah. to do a Twitter poll after this podcast. Because I did, I did like the Kirby Puckett caper. Obviously, caper with a K. Yeah, caper with a yeah, K. The Kirby. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Um, All right, so we'll we'll put put out a vote on that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think it's uh, I think it's a good plan. Um, and uh, with that, we'll transition into uh, some more of our regular conversation with Benjamin Hill as uh, we're getting closer and closer to minor league baseball opening day. Um, but that means we're still in the the swing of off season goodies and uh ben had a story up on the oldest team names in minor league baseball which we think about sometimes the oldest franchises or longest affiliations that type of thing Uh, but ben had a piece put together on the oldest team names in minor league baseball there are minor league baseball team names that go back until like just after the civil war this is kind of crazy ben was there anything that surprised you in this or did you kind of have an idea going in of what was going to stand out the most well, I had a general idea, and uh, as you guys know, and as a lot of listeners know, if they're immersed in any way in the world of minor league baseball, is that it gets very difficult um, to make lists as such as these because you have uh, you know, teams that were around for a while and disappeared and changed leagues and had a different variation of the name. So when I wrote this article, it was with a small sense of anxiety that once it went up, I would get slammed with, uh, actually from all over the place, people telling me, oh, you forgot this team or this team shouldn't be on the list. That was relatively mild because I did a great job. And, um, you know, that's what I do. I'm a professional. So nothing really jumped out at me. I don't think I had realized. So the Buffalo Bisons team name, you know, goes back to 1877 and they were actually a national league team from 1879 through 1886. So I, I, I knew that one. I knew they'd been around forever. I think one that surprised me was the Chattanooga lookouts that that's the only team name that's been used in Chattanooga minor league baseball history. And it was first used in 1885. Um, I had no idea that the Lookouts was such a venerable name um, and that they're, of course, named for the Lookout Mountain, which is, you know, in Chattanooga or at least portions of it are in Chattanooga. Uh, Arkansas Travelers is another another interesting one uh, from 1901. You know, that's a reference to the folk song, The Arkansas Traveler, which I wish I could sing to you, but I I don't know the words. Um, And when they so that they dates back to 1901. And when they changed their name to the Arkansas, they were the Little Rock Travelers. Um, through 1956, and then when they changed to Arkansas Travelers in 1957, they became the f- first professional sports team to adopt a state name, you know, just to go ahead and claim the whole state. So I thought that was an interesting one. Um, and, and another one, it's, it seems like a loophole or, or whatnot, but two of the oldest team names in minor league baseball are Indians, the Indianapolis Indians and the Spokane Indians. And, um, you know, this article is only unique minor league team names, meaning not sharing the name of a parent club. And uh, the Indianapolis Indians and Spokane Indians, dating from 1902 and 1903, respectively, uh, they qualify for this list because they have existed longer than the the, uh, Cleveland Indians, uh, the Major League Cleveland Indians, who didn't come around until 1915 in terms of the use of that name. Uh, So I thought that was another interesting one for sure. But we got Durham on the list, um, Toledo Mudhens on the list, 1896. So who knows what other mysteries lurk within their team history. Uh, Asheville Taurus all the way back to 1915. And then Bees of Burlington in 1924 and going back even further than that, the Salt Lake Bees in 1915. So I actually had a lot of fun writing this article. I got a really good response on it. Um, There's a lot to digest, look at, uh, argue about, what have you. So check it out on the website. And that website, again, is the official minor league baseball website, milb.com. And then you kind of have another story that's coming out. Uh, I think once this podcast will be up, you have that coming out. Or when is that? Friday? 
Uh, well, I'm working on a story that'll debut tomorrow, Thursday, the same Thursday. day as the podcast. Same day as the podcast. And since I'm in this sort of, uh, you know, kind of uh, more heavier research, uh, sprawling, deep dive mode here in the off season, uh, I'm doing a story on um, teams that have that are named after people, or whose stadiums are named after people, and just kind of who those people are. So if you ever wonder who the McCormick is in McCormick Field in Asheville, or who the Cashman is in uh, Las Vegas' uh, Cashman Field, um, or who McCoy is in, in Pawtucket's uh, McCoy Stadium, uh, that kind of thing, I just have a few write-ups of some of the more interesting people who have had minor league baseball stadiums uh, named for them. So check that out on the same website, coincidentally enough, MILB.com. That is quite a coincidence. Um, the uh, Actually, I never really thought about how perfect the name Cashman is for Las Vegas. That, As you were saying that just now, I never yeah, really and, thought about uh, that before. Yeah, and Cashman. I'm already forgetting his first name, even though I was just writing about him, like Big Jim Cashman or something like that. Just a, a quintessential turn of the century, turn of the 20th century, uh, more Wild West type life. You know, came from Missouri with nothing in his pocket. Uh, established a stagecoach line, started selling automobiles, uh, started Nevada's first franchise airline, um, sold tractors to the Hoover Dam project. Uh, what? Once that dried up, you know, he became uh, heavily involved in uh, promoting uh, Las Vegas as a tourist destination. So he really got the ball rolling on that. Um, and that included, you know, uh, having a, uh, a whole trainload of concrete um, donated to him that he used to uh, build the Las Vegas's first minor league baseball stadium, uh, upon which the same site is today's Cashman Field. Um, so, you know, I just did the research. It's all in the top of my head, except I forgot his first name. But, you know. We can't be perfect. Made a lot of cash, man. Vegas will be uh, moving into a new ballpark um, coming up here in a, a couple of years, as is the plan right now. But um, yeah, one of the one of the oddly historic ballparks in minor league baseball. Cashman Field actually was like the ballpark that got me uh, kind of introduced to minor league baseball back in the '90s. ESPN used to run the minor league home run derby of the all-star game. There was the triple a world series for a while, things that were all hosted at Cashman field. And then I don't know how many people remember this, but I think triple play baseball, I want to say for, for PlayStation, one of the very first minor league stadiums that ever appeared on a video game was Cashman field in Las Vegas too. So yeah, kind of a, a weirdly historic one, but there are a lot of those that you don't really think about that are named after people that you, nobody's probably explored before. So this is going to be a cool story. Yeah. Everything I do is unprecedented. Yeah. I would think so. Um, he's Benjamin Hill. Yeah. What what else is going on? This is kind of the cone of silence, right? I mean, most promo schedules, with the exception of short season teams, are probably out as of now, nearing the end of February or of January. We're still waiting for some in February. Yeah. Oh, there'll okay. still be a lot. I think February is okay. a bigger month than January. We still have the majority to look then forward to my uh, today. Trenton Thunder. Yes, please strike it. But you know, today's news: Trenton Thunder are going to suit up as the Trenton Pork Roll roll, not rolls pork roll singular uh for for every friday home game yes i was already corrected on twitter so there's big news for you for fans of food-based uh identities and uh yeah we got a lot more uh, promo stuff to come but it remains pretty slow here in the world of minor league baseball but yet we get it's by. all coming up on the site and uh you can check out the blog as well bensbiz.mlblogs.com ben's on twitter at bensbiz and uh one of the intrepid journalists who was able to track down the the kirby caper um, storyline or the the what was the one with the the pocket the predicament, predicament. Yeah, I'm sorry i already forgot it i'm sorry thanks ben oh thank you tyler and thank you sam and thanks to everyone who listens especially john <laughs> i don't know <laughs> <laughs>
welcome you into three strikes, but uh, we don't have to do that because we're already in the middle of this episode. So weird. <laughs> Is it, we're in a whole new world now. We're throwing ourselves a curveball. Like this just feels uncomfortable. I just to us, refrain but... from singing a whole new world from Aladdin. So everyone, please tweet your plaudits at me for not subjecting you to that. Before we even reach Twitter, I will thank you for that <laughs> because I feel like Disney is a very litigious organization. That's true. They would probably and, uh, they'd probably just sue me for they would not sue you for just sue for how bad it was. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, man, right. you are terrible. Um, so uh, again, big thanks to Ben. Um, and uh, the Kirby Puckett story has been solved. Um, so with that. We're going to get into our first third segment edition of Three Strikes, I believe, in the history of this uh, this little podcast that could. And we'll, uh, we'll kick things off. Um, Major League Spring Training is around the corner. We are like three weeks away from pitchers and catchers reporting, which is fantastic. Uh, but a lot of teams have already extended their spring training invitations to prospects and other minor league players. Sam, who stands out to you for strike one as being the most interesting spring training invitee so far? Um, yeah, mine really came out of left field. Uh, I know the White Sox are very excited about this prospect. I'm really excited to see what this prospect can do stateside. Uh, but they still he, he hasn't played stateside yet. He's only played in the Dominican Summer League. He only signed in May. Uh, if you don't know who I'm talking about yet, it's Luis Robert. Uh, the number three prospect currently in the White Sox system um, that could change when things come up. You know, MLB.com is about to announce its top 100 over the weekend. We'll get into that next week. Uh, some of the surprises from that. But Robert was a guy they signed for twenty six million dollars in May. You might remember us talking about it back then. Uh, extremely toolsy outfielder. Uh, you know, things I hear about him is that he might have plus plus speed and he has above average power. And that's incredibly exciting uh, to hear already. Uh, that means he's going to play well in the outfield with that speed. He's got a pretty good arm. Just literally everything you would want to see out of a player like this. Uh, he turned 20 in August. Um, but to give him a non-roster invite to spring training, it doesn't really mean anything. You know, it's, it's kind of like passing out candy. It's We want to see what you're going to be like in Major League Camp. Uh, you know, once Minor League Camp really opens, we'll probably, or they'll probably send him down again, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but the fact that they are confident enough in him that he can be around major leaguers, that he can take something from them, that he won't, you know, be lapped by the field kind of in that environment is really telling. And, and you know, they've had a couple of rookie camps uh, the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, they've had video that going out of Eloy Jimenez showing his light tower power, uh, all that kind of stuff. And, and the stuff I've heard about Robert, you know, he's hanging with those guys who are there. Um, and you know, he'll probably start the year something out like Winston Salem, Canapolis will be in that discussion. Um, but to already get a major league invite tells you plenty about what the White Sox think about him and where he already is in his development, despite only playing 28, uh, technical yeah, minor that league is games. Really, really impressive. Um, I'm going to go to the Cincinnati Reds organization and the Reds top prospect, Nick Senzel, and not because Nick is not worthy or because it's surprising given where he is in his career. But the thing that surprises me about it is Nick Senzel is basically going to go to major league camp in order to not play his position. Um, Reds GM Dick Williams said to MLB.com back in November, quote, I think he's got the talent to play a couple of different positions and we're going to let him do that. This is a guy that played shortstop in college, played third base in college, played second base as an amateur. We think he's clearly athletic enough to go to left field or right field. He's got the bat to do it. So Nick Senzel is basically going to go to big league camp 
and just be tested everywhere, um, which I think is a, a pretty, I don't want to say high stress environment because I don't think anybody expects Nick Senzel to go to major league camp and win a job on the big league roster right out of camp. Um, if anything, I think it's a really neat opportunity for him to be able to test himself in certain places. And this isn't a guy who's going to be asked to do things that he has not done previously in his career. Maybe playing in the outfield is a little bit foreign to him, but um, one of the things that was pointed out in the MLB.com story that was interesting was Dick Williams noted that Todd Frazier also brought up in the Reds organization, 34th, 34th overall pick in 2007. He was a shortstop, um, and as a prospect early on in his career, he played both corner infield positions. He played a little bit of second base. He played in the outfield, and Williams said, quote, we knew he was going to be able to hit in the big leagues. When Todd came up, we thought maybe the opportunity would be in left field, maybe third base, maybe shortstop. He had the ability to play multiple positions, and we played him that way. There's no reason why you wouldn't get Senzel some time at different positions. So it's just that element to me is a bit surprising in that you're going to throw a kid into major league camp and say, all right, man, have at it with doing all this other stuff. But I think that's really cool. I don't think it's surprising in a negative way. I think it's a, a really neat opportunity for somebody like Nick Senzel. Yeah. And kind of juxtaposing him with Robert, um, you know, I think Senzel could be one of the last cuts in Reds camp, not necessarily because he is on that cusp of major league duty, but just because they want to see him as much as they can at all those positions. Uh, you know, I would not be surprised if he's up by the middle of the season, even if the Reds really are competing, because I think the bat is that good. You saw him get even better at the second half last year at double A Pensacola. Um, so he'll be knocking down, knocking on the door pretty quickly uh, in 2018. And they're going to want to get as long a look as they can with him before sending him back to probably triple a Louisville. Uh, Strike to two this week, Sam uh, MLB pipeline is coming out with its top 10 positional prospect rankings. Uh, left-handed pitcher, right-handed pitcher, all of the uh, infield and outfield spots, catcher. Everything is out as of recording time right now, except for outfielders. That'll come out on Thursday, the 25th, when you are listening to this. Um, but what is uh, is most notable to you about these rankings so far? I, I think the most interesting group isn't necessarily one we usually think about in terms of top 100 talent, um, but it's catchers for me, just because – I think the way these guys are ranked, the way they're kind of stacked up tells us a lot about how we're kind of evaluating catchers now and how that's changed. Uh, number one, they have Francisco Mejia. I don't think that's a surprise to anybody who knows how well, how good of a hitter he is and how close to the majors he is. Carson Kelly, um, I wrote this last week in what we're going to talk about for our third segment uh, in the NL Central Prospect Projections. I'm totally on the free Carson Kelly bus. I might be driving it. In fact, uh, I would really like to see him get outside of uh, Yadier Molina's shadow. Uh, he's major league ready. He could be an everyday catcher right now. It's not going to happen with Yadi there. That's understandable. Uh, they're also not going to trade him because Yadi's old, and not, et cetera. Uh, but this is where it starts to get interesting. Kybert Ruiz, the Dodgers catcher, is number three. A's catcher Sean Murphy is number four. And Jake Rogers, formerly of the Astros, was traded to the Tigers in the Justin Verlander trade, is number five. Those three, four, five guys might be some of the best defensive catchers in the game right now. And I think we're kind of changing, like I said, we're changing the way we evaluate catching because there's a lot more emphasis put now on how are you receiving skills? You know, how many strikes can you kind of steal us in, in a game going along? It's not just, okay, who are the best hitters? Because then that's when you get into number six is Jorge Alfaro. Uh, number seven is Chance Sisko. Number eight is Danny Jansen, who had a breakout year last year. Number nine is Zach Collins, a 
former first round pick who the bat is advanced. The power is pretty good. Lots of questions about how good he is as a catcher. And number 10 is Victor Caratini, uh, kind of similar profile to Collins, although he actually has some major league time under his belt with the Cubs. Um, so just the fact that Ruiz, Murphy, and Rogers are there at 3-4-5 tells me a little bit something. Those are guys who are going to get there because they can control the staff. They can get you a couple extra strikes over a course of a game. Uh, are their bats quite there yet? You know, uh, Maybe, maybe not. I think Ruiz probably has the best hit tool of that those three. Um, but, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see how they're handled this year. Is If, let's say, you know, Rogers, who was given a 70 grade for his fielding ability, uh, if he's hitting 220 this year, does he still get called up because he handles the staff that, that well? Uh, that's going to be really interesting. And we'll have to see the, how this goes with some of the other catchers who are coming up through systems. Uh, so that's the most interesting group. I think a lot of the other ones are kind of filled out with the guys you know, the names you know. You know, we can argue about some of the the rankings here and there, but this is one that I saw that had such a fundamental shift uh, to the way we would normally look at this in other years, you know, 2017, 2016, and, and going yeah, even further back. Yeah, I think that's a really back. good point. The one that stood out to me, there's uh, a couple of middle infields that are going to be really fun to watch for the next few seasons, and the reason why is this. The shortstop rankings have the fifth-ranked prospect in that category is Royce Lewis of the Minnesota Twins, and the tenth-ranked prospect in that category is Nick Gordon, also the Minnesota Twins. Royce Lewis uh, last year, of course, was at – the low levels of the minor leagues. He was the first round, first overall selection of the Twins in 2017. And Nick Gordon has already climbed the ladder. He was the Double A Chattanooga last year. Um, and of those two, Nick Gordon would be the guy to move over to second base. But in addition to those two, Fernando Tatis Jr. is the second ranked shortstop prospect and a guy who has played a lot of shortstop in his career is now listed as really a second baseman slash shortstop, but that's Luis Arias, who is the second-ranked second-base prospect in the San Diego Padres organization. Those two guys are kind of climbing the ladder. They're a lot closer on the organizational ladder than Lewis and Gordon on the twin side. Um, but, man, if I'm a fan of either of those teams, you, you try to build strong up the middle, and that stands out, the fact that each of these teams has two dynamite middle infield guys on the way up. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the Twins, a name that's not on this list, and I, I won't harry a guess to where he would be on the shortstop list, but you know he's he's a fringe top 100 guy. Wander Javier in that twin system uh, had a monster year last year. Uh, there's a lot of discussion. Are he and Royce Lewis going to be at the same level next year? Are they both going to be shortstop? How is that going to work out? That's some questions we'll have for for the Twins this spring. Hopefully when I get down to Twins camp, that's something I'm going to be investigating. But, uh, yeah, that system, uh, is that's a good problem to have. That's something you want. And uh, same thing with the Padres. You know, they're starting to fill out certain spots. And for a rebuilding club like that to know that you basically have your middle pairing of the future already there. Uh, they just need to complete their development. It is really exciting. Strike three, Sam, this week. The prospect projections rollout continues. National League Central is uh, is up and on the site. Um, what do you like in the Central? Yeah, what I liked about this was, and the news cycle has kind of changed since a little bit since I first wrote this, but it still kind of stands. Uh, the Brewer system is one that we've often talked about being pretty loaded, uh, especially at the top and any conversation in the Brewer system right now basically has to start with Lewis Brinson, uh, who got some major league time last year, uh, spent most of the year at AAA Colorado Springs before having a uh, hamstring injury end his season pretty early. But 
the way we look at the steamer projections, you know, I, I think the Brewers outfield is particularly stacked right now. Uh, Ryan Braun in left, Domingo Santana in right, potentially Brett Phillips in center, but Keon Broxton's also there. Uh, Hernan Perez is on the roster. They have a pretty good outfield. I mean, that's basically what helped get them along with, you know, Travis Shaw being really good last year and Eric Thames being as good as he was. Um, you know, that that's what got them into contention in a surprising way. And to add Brinson to that mix is going to be really interesting. So I wanted to see what Steamer had to say about that. Steamer is a big believer in Brinson, at least right off the bat. Uh, it projects him to be worth 1.7 war next year, which is exactly the same as Ryan Braun and Domingo Santana. Um, you know, it doesn't expect him to be as good a hitter as them. They have 114 WRC plus projections. Uh, Brinson has a 94 projection. They expect him to hit 22 home runs, 15 stolen bases over 600 plate appearances. Those are obviously solid counting stats. Uh, and he's going to be a better defender than those other two. Um, they expect him to kind of be just a smidge under it average but that that'll certainly play in center field and when you talk about his scouting reports everybody says you know his speed helps him in center field he's not getting necessarily the greatest reads but he can cover plenty of ground he's going to work well there um so he should be an opening day option for them um what i was referencing in terms of the new cycle is that over the weekend i think it was jerry krasnick of espn was reporting that the brewers were kind of involved in some trades there looked like their one that or one might be imminent uh, that didn't end up being the case, but he said they were discussions involving outfielders, uh, potentially dealing one away. I know they would love to maybe move Ryan Braun because he has a very expensive contract. Uh, you know, he's due $56 million over the next three seasons and then has a $15 million option or a $4 million buyout for 2021. You know, Brewers aren't a big market club as much as Braun has helped them over the years. They would probably like to free up some of that money. Especially with being this close, they want all the talent they can get and all, all the space they can get. Um, but maybe dealing Santana, they can get plenty back for him, uh, especially if they view last year's breakout as just a one-year thing. But then news broke <clears throat> after this story went up that the Brewers are, have been interested in Christian Yelich as another outfield option. Um, what exactly it would take to get him, we don't quite know. We know the Marlins have reportedly asked the Braves for Ronald Acuna and, you know, we're told no very quickly, but that's kind of the asking price. They're asking for top prospects here, Christian Yelich, and you can't really blame them. Um, but if the Brewers are doing this, does that mean Brinson has to be involved in a trade? Uh, would they try to add Yelich to that mix and maybe build around Santana, Brinson and Yelich? Who knows? Uh, I'll be really interested to see how that's going to play out. Um, but as things stand right now, you know, as good as the Brewers outfield is, I believe, uh, I think Lewis Brinson should very much be a part of that. You know, he, he'll probably be sent to AAA Colorado Springs beginning of the year, but should anybody falter, uh, should that center field spot look not as firm as it does right now, they shouldn't hesitate to bring him up. And uh, I think if he's healthy, he can have a really solid year, you know, at the major league NL Central Prospect projections up on the site right now, and that'll do it for three strikes for this week's episode number 144 of the show before the show. Different formatted episode this week, and we're coming back to wrap it up next. Finishing off episode number 144 of the show before the show 
podcast. Um, the uh, the show will return next week with some new fodder. MLB Pipeline's top 100 prospects coming out this weekend. There are already other top 100 lists out. Um, but, of course, we, uh, we, we stick with the best with the MLB Pipeline top 100. So excited to see what that looks like. And uh, a lot more going on in the baseball world right now, Sam. Uh, Hall of Fame voting close to coming to an end. Yeah, by the time you guys will hear this, obviously the Hall of Fame voting will be complete. Everybody's being announced actually about half an hour from when we're recording this right now. Um, I, along with our colleague and friend, Kelsey Hennigan, are heading to the uh, the Hall of Fame press conference here in New York City tomorrow. Uh, Kelsey will be doing up kind of the basic Hall of Famers through their minor league career story. Um, I'll be doing something for Toolshed on Friday about a specific or a specific Hall of Famer, so look out for that. Uh, and yeah, that'll be a lot of fun. I always get excited about the Hall of Fame. I know previous years, this one's not so bad necessarily, um, but previous years it's been very controversial. People get really heated yeah. about Hall of Fame stuff. I, I don't know if it's just this batch of candidates doesn't bring that out in people as much or if we're all just kind of collectively over it where you just decided this is supposed to be fun, let's keep it fun. Um, but I know we were all worried about what the Omar Vizquel yeah. debate was going to be like, and that was not yeah. as bad as it could be. Um, so yeah, I'm really excited to find out who made it tonight and how big the class. Yeah, is he's be currently, uh, and it looks like it's going to be a big class as of uh, as of right now. Um, this was updated uh, just about an hour ago. The the Hall of Fame um, ballot tracker, which is uh, an absolute essential. Um, from Ryan Tibbs, who tracks uh, all public ballots and even gets some anonymous submissions, but bbhoftracker.com. You can check out the um, the pretty much live spreadsheet. So far, right now, he's got 239 public ballots counted and five anonymous ballots, so that's 57.5% of ballots known. Um, and of those, uh, Vlad Guerrero's in, Trevor Hoffman is in, Chipper Jones will get in on his first uh, shot on the ballot, Jim Tomei is going to get in, Edgar Martinez looks as if he will get in. Um, so pretty big class. Um, but yeah, Omar Vizquel right now, yeah, I think that conversation was was weighing heavily on people's minds. As of right now, on these known ballots that have been revealed, he's only been voted in on 33.6% of those ballots. Um, so we'll have that discussion for a little while to come, but he's not going to get in uh, on this try on his first time through. Uh, but, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, Edgar Martinez yeah, is right on yeah, that cusp right now. Cool. 77.5%. We'll, we'll talk, yeah, we'll talk about that more next week. I think he's the one that – you know, I think this is his ninth ballot. Next year will be the final one. Uh, so he'll kind of have that Tim right. Raines role of, okay, it's now or never. You got to choose whether you really think he's a Hall of Famer. There's no more pushing this off. Um, I feel like he's not going to get it just because the type of people who don't reveal their ballot are the people who are less likely to vote for yeah. a strict DH. Um, just talking, you know, the pools of people we're talking about here. Um, but, yeah, I, that, I would love to see him in. I, I am fully on the train of yeah, Edgar Martinez the Hall of Fame. One of the best hitters of, you know, my baseball Same. watching life. Uh, I would love and, to see him uh, the guy who's going to be coming up right behind him on the uh, the Tim Raines train is Larry Walker, who this year has experienced a pretty big surge um, in in voting numbers over what he had had in uh, in 2017 and seasons past. Um, last year, he his final total was 21.9%. This year, of 57.5% of ballots known. He's at 38.1% in his eighth year on the ballot. Um, it's my favorite ball player of all time, so I'm very biased. But Larry Walker, everybody's going to throw out the Coors Field thing about Larry Walker. If you go look at Larry Walker's career numbers, he was a better hitter 
on the road virtually through his entire career than he was at home, um, which includes his time at Coors Field, uh, his very limited time in St. Louis, his time in, uh, in Montreal as well. But um, that is the best pure baseball player I've ever seen live because he did everything. It was like it was like seven tools with Larry. It wasn't five tools with him. He had like additional tools that you couldn't even really put your finger on. Um, so he's, uh, he's the one I hope after, after Edgar gets in, I hope he gets to pick up that momentum. What, what are the six you know, and seven I think, tools? Uh, you can't just I think say that. Mullet growing is one. And I think um, sticking to, and he's in his 50s now, but sticking to the line that he was a better hockey goalie than he was baseball player, I think, is the seventh. He still to this day I says was that say, he was a better goalie in hockey. He was cut from like every hockey team he ever played on, but he's, uh, you know, he's a, uh, a native of British Columbia. And uh, he says that he was like the world's greatest goalie and just nobody gave him a chance. Right, I was going to say uh, the seventh tool is just Canadian Yeah, that's origin. true. Maple Ridge, by the way, he's from Maple Ridge, um, B.C., which Maple Ridge is the same hometown as Tyler O'Neill, now of the St. Louis Cardinals. Weird. Well, what's Weird. in that water? Apparently, so they grow them big. They really good big stuff. in Maple Ridge, British yeah. Columbia. Um, but, yeah, so we'll talk about the Hall of Fame next week, um, and we got some more stuff coming up to the site. Um, yeah, crazy. Three weeks away. Very yeah. excited. Uh, you you mentioned something know, about yeah. how you're just getting as excited. As, like, uh, I can't. Josh Jackson and I have gone down to spring training together in Arizona the last couple of years, and we send each other a text now, like, once every few days, like, man, I really can't wait for that trip. Like, it's so. This is the time of year where you just start getting so excited to go down there. And then people can get excited about the spring training yeah. cast yeah. that we always have. A ton of which is just us sitting around microphones, just being giddy that we're surrounded by baseball. Uh, so that'll do it for this week's show. We'll talk to you next week. He's Sam Dykstra. I'm Tyler Vaughn. See you then. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever or... I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend, or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.